scripture tonight is Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. A recent survey by Arizona Christian University states that nearly half of millennials, that would be those born between 1984 and 2002, nearly half of them either don't care, don't know, or don't believe that God exists. A May 2002 Gallup poll on values and beliefs tells us that belief in God in America is at an all-time low. At the May of 2009 Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, research was presented that said young Americans are dropping out of church at a rate of five to six times higher than they ever have in the past. Kelton Research conducted a study that found more people knew the ingredients of the Big Mac than could name seven of the Ten Commandments. According to Christianity Today, 67% of Americans say religion is losing its influence on American life. I want to repeat something I said this morning. We live in a culture of unbelief. Yet, here's the issue. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to carry on the mission and ministry of Jesus. Yes, in this unbelief-saturated culture, we are still required by the Lord Jesus to carry on the mission and ministry that He began. Tonight, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we do that? How do we do the work of the ministry in a culture of unbelief? This morning we discovered the difficulty of doing ministry in an unbelieving culture lies in the nature of unbelief. The very nature of unbelief is what makes ministry so difficult. Well, the question we have to ask then is how do we do it? How do we minister in an unbelieving culture? The scripture we're going to look at tonight will help answer that question. Please stand for the reading of God's Word, Mark 6, beginning in verse 7. And He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And He added, Do not put on two tunics. And He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Please be seated. Back in Mark chapter 3 verse 14. It tells us that Jesus appointed the 12 apostles so that they would be with him and so he could send them out to preach. Ever since that time, Jesus has been training them for ministry. All of the miracles, all of the parables, all of the teachings, all of the things he's done are a way of training them and preparing them to go out and preach. 
He taught them about the kingdom through telling and explaining parables. Through mighty works, He's given them insight into who He truly is. Now we know at this point, their faith is still small. They still have a lot to learn. But Jesus is going to send them out on their first preaching tour by themselves. The last thing Mark records before Jesus sends them out to preach is the incident we looked at this morning in Nazareth where Jesus' own people rejected Him. And it's important that they have that scene fresh in their minds as they go out to do ministry in the world because they too are going to encounter unbelief and hostility to their message. So in these verses... We see what Jesus said to his disciples before he sent them out. And we see what they did when they went out. And by looking carefully at this first mission endeavor of these 12 disciples, we can answer this question. How do we do ministry in a culture of unbelief? Four principles for doing ministry in a culture of unbelief. Here's the first one. Rely on Jesus. Rely on Jesus. First of all, I want you to notice, we rely on Jesus for the authority to do ministry. Okay, it tells us in these verses that Jesus sends the twelve out in pairs. Verse 7, He began to send them out. The verb to send out refers to being sent on an official authorized mission. What that's telling us is that Jesus has commissioned and authorized His disciples to do His work. And it tells us they were sent in pairs. And this is important because being in pairs not only would provide support and companionship for one another, but it would meet an Old Testament requirement that said you had to have at least two witnesses to establish any testimony. So one would give testimony to the reality of Jesus in the kingdom and there would be another there to support that testimony. Now keep in mind, this is why Jesus called the twelve to begin with. He appointed twelve so that they would be with him and he could send them out to preach. So now Jesus has summoned them, commissioned them, and sent them as ambassadors with his authority. To preach. Let me ask you a question tonight. By whose authority do we go out into an unbelieving world and preach the gospel? Who gives us the authority to go out and preach? Well, it's the authority of Jesus Himself. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is the Great Commission. This is how it begins. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. I'm telling you to go make disciples on the basis of my absolute authority over all things. The Great Commission is given to us on the basis of His authority. He calls us to go as the one who has authority to commission us and authorize us to go into the world and make disciples. Let me make something to you very clear. The authority to preach Christ does not come from the government. We don't need the government's permission to preach the gospel. We don't need the government's permission 
to tell others about Christ. Our authority to preach Christ doesn't even come from the organization of the church. No. Our authority to preach Christ comes from Christ himself. He has called us and commissioned us by his authority. So we rely on Jesus for the authority to engage in ministry. But notice this, we rely on Jesus for the power to engage in ministry. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus gave the disciples authority over unclean spirits. What that means is he gave them the ability to cast out demons. Now think about this. Jesus is sending them not independently, but as an extension of his own ministry. So he gave them the power to do the same things that he'd been doing. Not only the power to cast out demons, but if you look in verses 11 and 12, also the power to preach and heal. So he has given them their commission, the authority, and he's given them the power to engage in ministry. Listen, you and I should know by now that we can accomplish nothing in ministry apart from the Lord's power. John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In our own strength, we don't have the ability to accomplish anything fruitful in the way of gospel ministry. The good news is we aren't dependent on our own strength. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Understand, the Spirit of God was given to you and I to empower us to do the work of the ministry. To empower us to be ministers. The Spirit gives each believer spiritual gifts to enable us to serve the body of Christ to carry on the work of the Lord. So we not only rely on Jesus for the authority to do ministry, we rely on Jesus for the power to do ministry. Listen, and we rely on Jesus for the provisions to engage in ministry. The instructions given in verses 8 and 9 seem strange, but they serve one primary purpose. Jesus is teaching the disciples not to trust in their supply, but in the one who sent them. He tells them what they can and cannot take with them on their mission work. They could take a staff. It would be a slender piece of wood of various lengths. It would be used primarily to fend off animals or other attackers. They could wear sandals but they could take no food and they could not take a bag. Now this could have been two different kinds of bag. It could have been what's known as a beggar's bag, which meant they're not allowed to beg for their needs, or it could be a bag for carrying supplies, which means they're not allowed to carry supplies. They couldn't take any money. They couldn't even have two tunics. The tunic was the garment worn closest to the skin. An extra tunic would sometimes be used as a blanket. They couldn't take an extra one. Look, bottom line, they can't carry anything but the clothes on their back, the staff in their hand, and the shoes on their feet. That raises an important question. How would they eat? Where would they sleep? Verse 10 gives the answer. 
he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. In other words, when you arrive at a village or a town to preach, look for accommodations. Look for someone to provide hospitality, to offer you a place to stay, to share their home and share the meals with their family. Depend on the hospitality of strangers, in other words. But notice he says, stay in that house until you leave town. In other words, once you get a place to stay, don't go shopping around for better accommodations. If you get a place to stay, even if it's very meager, don't go shopping around. Be content with what the Lord provides you. Here's the bottom line. They were to depend on Christ to provide what they needed as they went from place to place. Now, understand these instructions aren't given as rules to be followed forever by anyone who does ministry. How do we know that? Because when you read the book of Acts, the ministry missions that took place in Acts, they didn't follow these rules specifically. They did take supplies and different things. The missions of the disciples later on in the Gospels were allowed to take some of these things. These instructions were given to the disciples to teach them something and to teach us something. Jesus can and will supply us with all we need to carry out the work he has given us. First of all, this was a short-term mission trip. He's not singing them out for months and years at a time. Second of all, he needs them to learn. When he goes back to heaven and they're left on their own for good, they need to know that they can depend on him to provide every need. We need to know that as well. As we do the work of the ministry, where does our provision come from? It comes from Jesus. Listen. Jesus can and will supply the material resources we need to do ministry. Jesus can and will supply the human resources that we need to do ministry. Jesus can and will supply the personal needs we have so that we are able to do ministry. Listen, whatever we need as a people, as a church, to be able to do his work where he's planted us, he'll provide that. Bottom line, we rely on Jesus for the work of the ministry. We rely on Him for the authority to do ministry. We rely on Him for the provisions for ministry. And we rely on Him for the power to do ministry. That's the first principle for doing ministry in a culture of unbelief. Rely on Jesus. Here's the second principle. Prepare for rejection. Verse 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. Understand something. When you're doing ministry in the midst of a, an age of unbelief, rejection is not a possibility. It is an inevitability. Rejection is not something that might happen. It is something that is going to happen. The, the practice Jesus mentions in verse 11, it, it, it goes back to a tradition that the Jews had. When Jewish people would travel outside of Israel, the Holy Land, 
they would obviously get foreign dirt and soil on their shoes. But when they arrived back to Israel, when they arrived back to the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off of their feet so as not to contaminate the Holy Land with foreign soil. This practice that Jesus is telling them to honor goes back to that. It's a symbolic practice that ties into that tradition. He describes this command in more detail in Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. Let me read that for you. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. You see this action. When you go preach and they reject you, shake the dust off your feet, this is to be a warning that if you continue to reject the message, if you continue to reject the messengers, judgment is coming. When a town or a village refuse to hear and believe the word of God, you shake the dust off, it says, as a testimony against them. In other words, this action is to serve as a witness for the prosecution. On the day of judgment, God's going to be able to say, you remember these men? You remember how they shook their dust off of their shoes because you refused to believe? So this is an act that is a warning and a witness against them. And you know what? It's really a statement to these Israelite villages that you are not a part of the true believing Israel. Essentially, it is the equivalent of declaring these Jewish villages heathen. You are not true Israel. The people who reject the words and deeds of Christ's disciples and thus are really rejecting Jesus himself they are marked as unrepentant and liable for judgment. And in the book of Acts, the disciples practice this literally. We see an example of Paul doing this in Acts 18, verses 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. The disciples were to be humble. They were to be persistent. They were to do their best to try to gain a hearing from the people. But they were never to force themselves on people who refused to hear. They would leave them with a warning of judgment and then move on to the next town. I don't know if you noticed it, but that's exactly what Jesus did. We saw him in Nazareth this morning. He was preaching and he was rejected. What did he do? Look at verse 6. He wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. What did he do? He moved on. He moved on. That's what we do. We preach the gospel. When it's rejected, we warn the people of the danger of rejecting the truth. And we move on to the next opportunity. 
Not long ago, I had a lady that I met through hospice care call me. I was not her hospice chaplain. I had been her mother's hospice chaplain, but I wasn't anymore. And she called me and said, I have a favor of you. Would you go share the gospel with my brother? Her mother was still alive, but they had dropped us and picked up another hospice group. And although she had a chaplain with that hospice group, she said to me, you're the best chaplain I've ever seen. And I just wanted you to share the gospel with my brother. My mama says she can't die until he gets saved. So I made an appointment to go to his house. And I did. He lives off 13 South. And I went to his home and he welcomed me in. Very kind. He, of course, he knew I was coming. We had arranged a meeting. I went in and sat down and I began to talk to him about God and his sin and the provision of the cross, eternal life and heaven and hell. I explained the gospel as clearly as I know how. I took one of those gospel tracts on that table back there. I gave him a copy. I took the copy and I read through it line by line. I, I said everything I know to say was as clear as I know how to be. But when I was done, I urged him to cry out to Jesus and he refused Christ. Did everything I know to do? And he simply would not turn to Jesus. What did I do? I took that trap. I tucked it inside one of those New Testaments. I put it in his hand. I warned him of the danger of rejecting Christ and I left. Listen, when you preach the gospel, People are going to reject it. And it doesn't matter if you're proclaiming it from a pulpit or talking with a stranger on a street corner. Many people are going to reject it. We should be humble and persistent. We should never be arrogant and prideful. We should do our best to gain a hearing with people. We remove any unnecessary obstacles that might keep people from hearing us. But still, when we've done all we can do, Many are going to reject the gospel that is an unavoidable reality of ministry in a culture, a society of unbelief. And look, we just have to be prepared for it. We just have to be prepared for that. What do we do when we're rejected? We leave people with a warning, then we move on and look for the next opportunity to witness or preach. That's all we can do. Prepare for rejection. So how do we do ministry in a culture of unbelief? Two principles we've seen so far. Rely on Jesus. Prepare for rejection. The third principle we see in verse 12. Make preaching priority. They went out and preached that men should repent. First notice it says they went out. Well, they went out where? They went out into the towns and villages of Galilee where Jesus sent them. They went out among the people who needed to hear the message. It's the way you have to do ministry. You, you, you go out. The first command in the Great Commission is go. Listen. To do Ministry and a culture of unbelief, the message has to get out. You understand? 
The message of the gospel has to penetrate the culture. If we're going to reach the culture, the message somehow has to communicate to the culture, has to be saturated in the culture, has to penetrate the culture. It's not enough just for the message to be proclaimed in the sanctuary, although we must do that. The message needs to get out into the world of people who are lost without Christ and without hope. Now that means a lot of things. It means we take every opportunity we get to preach. I never turn down an opportunity to preach unless I'm already booked somewhere else. I preach in schools, in retirement homes, in prisons, wherever the opportunity presents itself. Any chance to get the word out. We can use the internet now to get the word out. Every one of my sermons is recorded and put on the internet. Both of today's sermons will be on the internet by the end of today. And all you have to do is give people you know the name of my podcast and they can go on the internet and listen to all of my sermons. Listen, that's one way you can connect people who are unchurched or unbelieving to hear the preaching of the Word of God. Just write down the name of my podcast and say, look this up. Paul Young, Following Jesus is the name of my podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts and a lot of the other services. Listen, we can use technology to help us get the word out into the world. We use those New Testaments back there that have been there for months and nobody takes them. We use those tracts back there that nobody's taken. We use those and we give them to people. We tell our friends and family, co-workers and people we encounter the good news that there is salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Look, we have to make preaching priority. That means the word has to get out. But what did they do when they went out? They preached. Do you see that? They went out preaching, verse 12 says. The word preached means to herald. A herald was a person sent by the king with an official announcement to the people of the kingdom. A herald would go into a town. He would go to the busiest street corner in town and he would lift his voice. Attention all people of the kingdom. A message from the king. And he would unroll the scroll and read verbatim, word for word, exactly what the king said for the people. The only message he was authorized to deliver was the king's message. He couldn't alter it or change it or give his opinion on it. He just proclaimed it. Listen, the same is true for us. When we talk about make preaching a priority, we mean preaching in the sense of proclaiming the message of the king. We're not authorized to preach anything we want to, no matter how helpful we think it might be. We are not counselors engaging in pop psychology. We are not life coaches telling people how to have their best life now. We are heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go into the world and tell them this is what the king has said. Our message is the word of the living God. And to go out into the culture with any other message is both pointless and it is a violation of our divine commission. So the way that we conduct ministry in a culture of unbelief is to make preaching a priority. That means we got to get the message out. 
That means we have to preach the message God has given us. And notice the last part, verse 12. They preach that men should repent. What that means is the response they were calling for is repentance. The content of the message is not repentance. The content is the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom. Repent is the action they were calling the people to take. In other words, they were preaching the exact same way Jesus did. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what they were preaching. Repent and believe. Two sides of the same coin. In response to the proclaimed Word of God, we call on people to turn away from sin and turn toward Christ in a single action. Leave your sin and embrace Jesus. Here's the point I want you to see. If we're going to do ministry in a culture of unbelief, we have to call for a response. They went out to get the message into the culture of unbelief. They were prepared for rejection. They preached the message they'd been given. And they called people to respond to it. Listen, the preaching of the gospel is incomplete until we call people to leave their sin and trust Christ. You have not shared the gospel until you issue a call. Would you embrace Christ? God has commanded you to turn from your sin and trust in His only Son. The gospel is incomplete until we give the call to repentance and faith. Dr. Erwin Lutzer was the longtime pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago. He taught a preaching course at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And every year, he did something we might think strange. He took his preaching students on a field trip to the cemetery so they could preach. He would take his students in, to a little cemetery in Deerfield, Illinois, and, and he would gather them around a certain gravesite. He would point to the name on the tombstone, and he'd look to one of the students and say, Preach the gospel to Mr. Smith here. Of course, all the preacher, preaching boys would look at him like he was nuts. So then Dr. Lutzer would just start to preach the gospel to this grave. Sir, Jesus died for your sins and you must put your trust in Him. And then he would look at his preaching boy students and he'd say to them, this is no different than preaching the gospel to unsaved people. The Bible says that they are dead in their sins. What's the point? Don't you get it? That's why we preach. Nothing will awaken souls from the slumber of spiritual death but the preaching of the gospel. Nothing else is going to do it. Nothing can pierce the hardened heart of the unbelieving except for the preaching of the gospel. Without the preaching of the gospel, 
people will forever remain chained as slaves in the kingdom of darkness. Without the preaching of the gospel, men and women and boys and girls have no hope of escaping eternal judgment from God in the lake of fire. The only thing that saves is the gospel. We're talking about doing ministry in a culture of unbelief. Preaching the gospel is our primary ministry. That is what we do. We must make preaching a priority. But that doesn't mean we don't do anything except preach. Now we come to the fourth principle for ministry in a culture of unbelief. And it's this. Care for people care for people. Notice verse 13. They were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. I already mentioned how Jesus had given them the power to cast out demons and to heal. Now there, there was a couple of reasons why he did this. First of all, these miracles would demonstrate the truthfulness of their message. They were preaching that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated with the coming of Jesus. The kingdom is here. It is at hand. And these miracles they did would authenticate that the kingdom really has come. Evil is being pushed back. The power of the kingdom is here. So it authenticated their message. But it was more than that. Understand, these miracles were also an act of compassion. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Matthew 20, 34. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their blinded eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. You see, often when Jesus does miracles, it said he, he was moved with compassion, so He healed them or He cast out their demons. What does that tell us? Jesus cared about people. When He saw their broken bodies, He was moved by their pain. When He saw their lives being destroyed by the forces of evil, He was stirred on the inside when he saw them hungry, he was compelled to do something. Look, Jesus came to die for their sin, but he was concerned about their earthly needs as well. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We know Jesus did miracles to prove who he was, right? To prove he was the Son of God. Do you know there are a lot of kinds of miracles Jesus could have done? To prove he was the Son of God? He could have turned a cow into a donkey. That would have been pretty impressive. He could have turned a rock into a cactus. Did you ever think that all the miracles he did were to help people? You ever think of that? Healing, casting out demons, feeding them raising their dead. All the miracles He did were to help people. Why is that? 
Look, he gave the power he gave to the disciples not only to demonstrate his power, but to demonstrate his compassion. When we do ministry in the world, we are to demonstrate his compassion. We are to care for people. Now look, Jesus has had... Jesus hasn't given you and I the power to restore the sight of the blind. We don't have the ability to heal cancer or make the lame to walk. We we no longer need supernatural miracles to authenticate our message. This authenticates our message. But what we can do, we may not have powers to do miracles, but we can demonstrate the same compassion for people that Jesus did. We can do that. We can care for the sick. We can feed the hungry. We can clothe the naked. We can be a friend to the lonely. We can comfort the grieving. We can give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Look, we can care for people. That's something we can do. And can I tell you something? Sometimes it's doing just that that can open the door for the gospel. Sometimes it's the time you take to feed the hungry person or to clothe the naked person or to pay the power bill. Sometimes it's that effort to care for someone that will make them willing to hear the gospel. So we have to care for people. Sophia Cavaletti is a researcher. And she's pioneered a study in the, about the spirituality in young children. She found that children often have an amazing perception that surpasses even things they've ever been taught. She gives an example of one three-year-old little girl. This little girl was raised in an atheist family. She had no church contact at all. There was no Bible in the home. One day this little three-year-old girl asked her daddy, where did the world come from? Of course, her daddy gives her a purely scientific and naturalistic explanation of how things came to be theory of evolution and all this but but then he said this to her he said there are some people who say that all of this comes from a, a very powerful being and they call him God when he said that this little girl got up and started dancing around the room in absolute joy and she shouted I knew what you told me wasn't true. It's him. It's him. Listen. Even in the midst of the most unbelieving environments, there are still those who will believe. Even when there are so many surrounding us who reject it, there are still those who will say I know that's not true. It's him. Take heart, church. We can minister effectively in a culture of unbelief. How? By adhering to these biblical principles. 
Rely on Jesus. Prepare for rejection. Make preaching priority and care for people. Let's pray.